We are in the Christmas season. I know you're like, Corey, we haven't even gotten to Halloween yet. How can you say we're in the Christmas season? But um, in case you didn't realize it, we're only 58 days away from Christmas. Some of you have already started to decorate. Just a show of hands, how many of you have put up a Christmas tree already? Come on. I see a few. I'm just... So we have all the lights, we have all the decorations. I live uh, in a neighborhood close to uh, the street Shiloh here in Odessa. And if you don't know that Shiloh is one of the coolest places to drive down uh, during Christmas. The block goes crazy. That whole neighborhood goes crazy with Christmas decorations. And so now when I pick my children up every single day from school, as we drive by Shiloh, they've already started asking When are they going to start putting up Christmas lights? Because, you know, we had that one cold spell, and they're like, Christmas is coming, baby. Let's go. (laughs) So they've already started asking when the Christmas lights are going to go up and when uh, that excitement is just beginning to to grow inside of them. And so I compare that this morning with, uh, I remember a few years ago, we took uh, the teenagers, uh, many years ago, but to Carlsbad Caverns. Okay, And they actually have an excursion that you can book as you go to the Carlsbad Caverns where you go into this one big room in the caverns and it's all lit up. They have all these lights everywhere. And they will actually go over and turn the lights off. Anybody ever done that before? It's kind of crazy. You go into that room and it's completely and totally dark. You think about however many, uh, how far below the earth you are, the surface there. And, And when they turn those lights off, it is dark. Right, I would say I'm pretty good. Uh, I've been here at the church uh, this month. I would have moved to uh, Odessa to serve here at Emmanuel 20 years ago. It's, I know it's hard to believe, but 20 years ago I moved here and uh, started serving here. And I would say that I'm pretty good about finding my way around the church without turning any lights on. Right? I can make my way through the sanctuary really good. That pole right there is pretty bad because if you forget about it, and the bad part about hitting it is it lets out an enormous ring when you hit it, right? Uh, however, I'm pretty good because you have a little outside light. Maybe you have the exit lights and it lights a little bit of path, but you can see where you're going. Um, so comparing the, the light of Shiloh Street in Christmas and comparing the darkness of Carlsbad Caverns. And, you know, it's actually funny that Shiloh, uh, the day after Christmas, or maybe you get like, the day after New Year when all the Christmas decorations are down and all of the residents have forgotten to turn their house outside house lights back on, it's dark down that street, right? It goes from being one of the lightest places in Odessa to being one of the darkest. So light brings joy. Light brings comfort. Uh, When we are able to see, I was actually going to have them turn the the lights down here, but I didn't want to scare my children, much less yours, so I thought better of that. So Um, But Jesus today in the passage that we're going to read, he's going to claim, make the claim that he is the light of the world. Okay, And what I want you to do this morning as you're here is I want you to really think about and I want you to ponder in your heart the question, who do you say Jesus is today? Because there's been lots of claims on who Jesus is. Who he is not. Um, 
And my prayer is that wherever you stand today on your belief in Jesus, that God would shed light uh, on the truth of who Jesus is, who his son is to you this morning. So John chapter 8, we're going to be starting in verse 12. Said again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. For where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand That he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask this morning that as you are the light of the world, Father, that you would um, shed light upon your truth and your gospel this morning. And Father, as we uh, look at your scripture, as we contemplate in our hearts who Jesus is today, I pray that if we do not know your son, that we would know him today. And I pray that if we do know your Son as Lord and Savior, that, God, you would shed light in such a way on us that it changes who we are. And, Father, that it would help us to obey you and follow you uh, more diligently in our lives. 
So again, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. I pray that you are honored in all that we do today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we've uh, talked about for the last several weeks, uh, the last several chapters we've been talking about, chapter 8 takes place uh, during the Feast of Booths, or it can also be known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And so there's three festivals. The first festival is the, fe- uh, the Feast of Trumpets, okay? Uh, or as you may see on your calendars, Rosh Hashanah. Okay, and they would take a ram's horn and they would blow these ram's horns and it was to get the people's attention. Uh, and the people were to hear these sirens, these, these uh, sirens going off, these ram's horns that are being blown. And they were supposed to pause and they were supposed to take notice because God had something to say. And so it would be like if you're driving down the street and you hear an ambulance, right? The first thing you do is you figure out if it's behind you, and if it's behind you, you pull over and you get out of the way. They want you to pause, they want you to take notice, and they want you to listen. And so the people were to pause and reflect on how they had sinned against God. They were to pause and reflect on how they had sinned against other people throughout the previous year, and it was supposed to direct the people into a place of repentance. Nine days later, so for nine days they were to think about those things. They were supposed to pause, they were supposed to reflect on the past year, and they were, it was supposed to take them to a place of repentance. Nine days later was the Day of Atonement, okay? One man, the high priest, would enter into the Holy of Holies and he would make a sacrifice for the nation, uh, for the sins of the nation. And the Bible tells us very clearly in the Old Testament that there was no forgiveness without blood sacrifice. And God would extend grace and God would extend mercy to these people based on the blood sacrifice. Now, as we know, as we're going to talk about a little bit later in the sermon, Uh, we know ultimately that blood sacrifice was pointing forward to Jesus. But in the moment, in the Old Testament, the sacrifice was made by the high priest as a day of atonement, to atone for the sins of the people. And then after the day of atonement, there was five days, five days later, there was what we have now, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, in which there was a time of celebration, there was a time of rejoicing for God's forgiveness. So for seven days, they were to celebrate They were to remember God's grace. They were to remember God's mercy. And it was supposed to lead them into a time of celebration. What an amazing time to be a part of God's people. Uh, Remembering what God had done for them in the past. Remembering what God had done for them right there in the present moment. And so... During that time, of course, they would bring the harvest of grapes. They would bring the harvest of of, um, olives. Uh, They would make wine out of the grapes, and they would enjoy that part of the celebration. And, of course, with the olives, they made that into food, and they made it into oil. And the oil would be used in what we're going to talk about today. Um, These celebrations would go through the night. These celebrations, uh, as we've talked about in the previous week, they lived in tents. They lived in these booths to remember how God had led the people out of, uh, out of Egypt, how they walked around in the wilderness. They lived in these tents, and this is how they remember that. We realize that there was a, a pillar of cloud by day that led the people around while they were during the day, and there was a pillar of fire by night in which it just lit the entire countryside up. They could see it brought light to everyone. And as the pillar went, they followed whether it was the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And this was God's presence with his people. 
They knew that God had been with them in the wilderness. They knew that God's presence was with his people. And so they camped in these tents. They celebrated. They uh, remembered what God had done in the past. And so in that same way, we, it was helping them to look back and remember Moses in the Old Testament. Leading the people out of bondage, out of slavery, into the promised land. Pointing, pointing us forward to the reality of what God wants to do through faith in Jesus in the New Testament. So leading people to experience freedom from the bondage of sin and freedom that can only be found in Jesus. So at night, they had these, uh, uh, these huge menorahs, these huge, uh, what some people call candelabras. And I had a little picture. You can see it right there. So there was these torches that people, and they would fill these things with oil. And they would actually wrap up the priests used garments their old garments and they would use those garments as wicks and so at night they they lit these menorahs and these things were 70 feet high these things would shine lights all over the city Um, the feast was coming to an end Jesus was standing here in this moment, probably in the midst of this courtyard, in the midst of these massive menorahs. And it was in this moment that Jesus is going to say what he said right here in the passage that we just read. Uh, One commentary that I uh, read this week uh, mentions that Jesus was probably there at night while these things are lit up shining bright all over the place, and he's going to say, I am the light of the world. I also listened to another pastor that said it may have been the next day. I'm, t- I'm here to tell you that really doesn't matter what we're going to talk about. It just makes a pretty cool point that maybe these candles are still going strong. Maybe they're still burning bright. Maybe the sun had already come up. May- maybe the newness of the celebration that they had just taken place was kind of wearing off. You know, it's like the day after Christmas, right? You have all these lights, all of this celebration leading up to Christmas, and then all of a sudden you have Christmas, you have the, uh, the chaotic family dinner, you have the opening of presents, you have all of that stuff, and then the next day you're like, oh. and you start the packing up process. I know there are a few... Uh, very excited people that will keep it up way past New Year's, right? But for the normal people, December 26th, right? Take it down, put it up. Let's get back to the normal. That may be kind of what these people were feeling in this moment. Yes, they were excited to celebrate what God had done in Exodus. They were excited to remember what God had done. They were also very excited about looking forward to the Messiah that was to come. Looking forward to the day when God would send the Messiah to come and to save his people. And now the celebration was over. Well, there's another year. Back to the grind. Let's just keep this going. So maybe it was in that moment that Jesus stands up and proclaims, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world is the second of seven I am claims by Jesus in the book of John. There's going to be seven of these throughout John. This is number two. A few weeks ago, Hunter talked about the first one where it said Jesus was the bread of life. So here in verse 12, Jesus claims, I am the light of the world. 
He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Pharisees are very quick to find fault in the statement that Jesus makes. Verse 13. You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. The first part of this statement is very obvious. You cannot deny the fact. Jesus was speaking about himself. Sometimes when Jesus spoke, he kind of spoke in code. This time he was not speaking in code. He will in a minute. But this statement is blatant. I am the light of the world. It wasn't someone else claiming that he was God. This was Jesus himself making the claim that he was the light of the world. And the second part of this affirmation is a little more confusing. um, But only based on the testimony that he was giving. Because in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, we see that if you were to make a claim like this, if you were to make this type of a claim, you had to have at least two witnesses to back up what you were saying. And not just two witnesses, but two witnesses that would agree on what you were claiming. So when he makes this claim, I am the light of the world, it uses this strange Greek phrase, uh, ego ami, right? Which literally means I am, I am. And it could be translated, I am who I am. Which, if you turn back to Exodus in chapter 3, you will see that this is the great name of God. Moses at the burning bush, he says, I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh. Who do you want me to say sent me? Tell them I am who I am. This was the great name of God. And so when Jesus makes this statement, they immediately think of that. And they're saying, you cannot say that. You don't have any witnesses with you. And the Pharisees internally look at him angered, I'm sure, and they said, you are saying that yourself? Therefore, what you say is not true. They were counting his testimony of himself as false based on the Levitical law. But these guys, the Pharisees, take it even a step further, okay? They don't just say that you can't say that your testimony uh, isn't true. They actually declare that his testimony is false, Meaning, what you are saying is a lie. I want you to think about that for a minute and just let that soak in. The most educated people on the law of God at the day were the very ones who accused the incarnation of truth itself of being a false witness. The very people who should have seen the Messiah for himself as who he was were the very people who were looking at him and saying, you are a false witness. But there's a little bit of irony here. Because the Greek word for witness in this verse is the word maturia. Which is where we get the English word for martyr. It indicates one who loses their life for a cause. And this word comes from the Greek word witness. Because there is such a close relationship between martyrs of the early church and their witness to the truth of who Jesus is. We know that the first martyr of the Christian church was Jesus himself. And in his martyrdom, he bore witness to the truth of all the things that he had said and all the things that he's going to say here in this passage. 
It's scary to think of someone standing before Jesus, having this conversation with Jesus and saying, what you say is false. You know, if someone were to walk up to me after church and say, all right, Corey, your testimony is false. Like, yeah, several times in my life it has been false, right? I've said a few lies here and there in my day. Uh, we won't get into those. But if you were to make those claims, there, you would have an argument, right? You would have an argument. Even if Hunter and Chris both said, no, he's a pretty truthful guy. He's all right. It wouldn't matter, okay? Because you would have a little bit of ground to stand on. But to think that these guys... What, what they're doing here in this passage. We think that they look completely crazy. We think that that would be completely out of line. But if you really stop and think about it, it's exactly what a lot of people do all over the world today. Your testimony of who you say you were is false. We don't believe it. And that leads us to the big idea of the passage. Here's the big idea. Unless you believe that Jesus is I am, you will die in your sins. So let's look at what Jesus, how he is going to defend his testimony. What he's going to say about them saying that your testimony is false. And let's see how he's going to respond to them. And then, of course, the confusion that he's going to cause in their lives. First of all... Jesus' testimony was based on his first-hand knowledge of heaven. When Jesus is faced with the Pharisees' question, he immediately will state some reason why his testimony is true. Verse 14, Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. Jesus says his testimony is based on his knowledge that he has experienced of heaven. Okay? I've been there. I'm going back there. You don't know where I've come from, and you don't know where I'm going. And the Pharisees, of course, are just blind to this fact. They don't realize this fact. They, at this point, are wanting him to say something that would um, that they could use against him to arrest him. We know that Jesus is starting to make some jabs at the Pharisees. He's starting to stir the pot with them a little bit. He's starting to ruffle their feathers. And they're just hoping and praying for an opportunity to arrest Jesus. Secondly, Jesus judges from the perspective of heaven. So he has this firsthand knowledge of heaven. But secondly, he judges from a perspective of heaven. Flip over to Romans chapter 2. This is not Romans 2 yet, but Jesus said, You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. You know, this is kind of an interesting statement that Jesus makes uh, as it's recorded here in John. When you read it that way, you're like, wait a minute, Jesus judges no one. But I thought Jesus is going to judge all men. And and so you're like, how 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 do I make sense of that? Notice here that Jesus did not say what he did not say here. He did not say he would not serve as judge over all men. Some other passages in the Bible will claim that. Look at Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse and even excuse them. 
On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men, what? By Christ Jesus. So all the secrets of men, all the things that God, God is going to be judged by Jesus. Jesus gets to judge all men. So what Jesus is saying here, when he says, I judge no one. What he could have said is, I judge no one in that way. You judge by the flesh. I don't judge anyone like that. So Jesus judges from the perspective of the place that he's from. And that's from heaven. I don't judge in the fleshly ways that you guys do. I judge the secrets of men, like it says. Thirdly, Jesus' father was his witness. Verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. You know, this is Jesus' bottom line argument. Um, have any of you ever experienced or seen uh, one of those arguments on the playground when you're a kid that goes a little something like this? You have this argument, and you say... And, and it usually happens when the weaker party is over-trumped by the more powerful party, right? And they say, well, I'm going to go get my big brother. Oh, yeah, well, I'm going to go get my big brother, and he can beat up your big brother. Oh, yeah, well, my big brother has a stick. Oh, yeah, well, I'll go get my dad. Oh, yeah, well, I'll go get my dad. My dad can beat up your dad. And it just goes on and on and on, right? Oh, yeah, well, my dad knows karate. Oh, my dad's a cop. He'll arrest your dad. <laughs> and it just goes on and on and on. You've participated in that, right? No one? Okay, just making sure. Jesus kind of does this in this moment, right? Well, if I do judge, the bottom line argument is that Jesus did have an argument to the claim of who he was. Not only did he bear witness of himself, but guess what? He's like, listen, I got a father who's in heaven that bears witness about who I am. And when we read this passage in the light of the rest of scriptures, okay, when Jesus refers to his father who sent him, he is referring to the first person of the Trinity. So Jesus here is claiming, yes, that is my God, God the Father. And we can imagine these guys' confusion, 100% confusion. When Jesus just said, my father sent me here, my father has my back, and you know, in the back of their minds, they're thinking, Joseph, the carpenter? What, what are you, who, what? And so the Pharisees did not want to hear it. They were confused. They were completely out of touch with the truth of who Jesus was uh, proclaiming to them that he was. And so they did the very thing that every confused person does. They try to make it as elementary as possible. It's like when you have this conversation with your child, and you're just like, okay, just listen very carefully. And so the Pharisees are like, Jesus is making no sense, so let's, let's dumb it down. Who is your father? Verse 19. Later in verse 27, we're going to see that John tells us that they did not understand that he spoke of them of the father. William Barclay says it like this. I love this quote. Jesus bluntly told the scribes and the Pharisees that they had no real knowledge of God. The fact, how would you like to be told that if you're a Pharisee? 
you have no knowledge of God. The fact that they did not recognize him for who and what he was, the proof that they did not. The tragedy was that the whole history of Israel had been designed so that the Jews should recognize the Son of God when he came. But they had become so involved with their own ideas, so intent on their own way, so sure of their own conception of what religion was that they had become blind to God. And then Jesus makes some statements that deserve our full attention this morning. Verse 19, Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Down in verse 42, and I don't want to hit on this, but just a second, because I don't want to take away from Landon's sermon next week. But it says, if God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. You know, there are millions, if not billions of people all around the world who claim to know God as their father. Let me say that again. There are millions, if not billions of people all over the world right now who would claim that they know God and they have a relationship with God. However, those millions and billions of people also reject Jesus as the Son of God. And Jesus here is saying, if you know one of us, you know the other one. And if you don't know one of us, you don't know the other one. And so, millions of people... Uh, are faced with that reality. You can't know the Father and not know the Son. Their testimony is one. The Father bears witness about the Son, and the Son bears witness about the Father. And that brings us to the third time in the book of John that John will mention that something didn't take place because his hour, Jesus' hour, had not yet come. First time was in chapter 2. Second was last chapter in chapter 7. In English, we have a word for time. Um, we have one word for time in English. Okay, uh, It's time to go to work. That's one type of time. And then we had a good time at the movie, right? That's talking about, this is talking about the physical time. One is talking about uh, something that happened, something that took place. Okay, So one word, two meanings. In Greek, the language has two words. The first word is chronos, right? It has to do it by a moment-by-moment moment passing of time. A clock or a wristwatch, a chronometer, a device which measures chronos, which measures time. That's one word. Another word that's used is kairos. And the word kairos refers to a specific, special moment in time. Uh, I'm a war movie buff. I'm very excited about a movie that's coming out next month. Um, it's a movie in which uh, it's called Midway. It's about the Battle of Midway that takes place. And my, me and my family just went to San Diego this summer. And one of my son's favorite things that we did on the entire trip is we went and to the USS Midway. And we got to take a tour. And we got to see all the planes. And they got to sit in the cockpits. And this was so cool. I'm going to give you a little history lesson, okay? Um, there was an interesting man by the name of Eddie O'Hare or Edward O'Hare, okay? This was a guy who grew up in Missouri. He went to law school. He became a lawyer. He moves to Chicago. He, all of a sudden in his life, um, 
begins to have a relationship with a guy named Al Capone. Many of you know, may know who Al Capone is. He has this relationship with him in which Mr. O'Hare covers up for Al Capone in all of his financial dealings and how he gets to keep all of his money and evade paying taxes. Okay? Now, if you know who Al Capone is, he's a mobster, so he's involved in a whole lot of other things. But Eddie O'Hare was pretty much in charge of the books. And when it came time to lie, when it came time to uh, do all of these things with the government, he could cover all the time. Why would I tell you that story? I want to tell you that story because I want to tell you about Eddie O'Hare's son, Edward Jr. Also went by the name Butch, Butch O'Hare. When Butch uh, wanted to get into the Naval Academy, you had to have the required backing of a congressman. And because all of these congressmen knew of his father's dealings with Al Capone, he really could not get into the Naval Academy. Kind of an interesting story. And you're like, well, that's kind of a sad story. It was a sad story until dad decides to turn in Al Capone for a favor to get his son into the Naval Academy. And you're like, well, that's, that's a really interesting story. Uh, and if you know the story and why I brought up Midway, uh, Butch O'Hare, Eddie O'Hare Jr., whatever you want to call him, he gets into the Naval Academy. He becomes a fighter pilot. And he becomes a fighter pilot about the time that World War II kicks off. Okay? And Mr. O'Hare uh, was on the USS Lexington when they were out uh, around the Midway area. And when some Japanese planes found out where the USS Lexington was. And the importance of this moment and how... When you had these carriers and these battleships out there in the ocean and how pivotal they were at turning the war uh, around. And when Mr. O'Hare and one other pilot, they take off from the Lexington. That's all that was there. There was other ones on reconnaissance missions. These were the only two guys. They encounter a bomb squad of nine bombers headed to the USS Lexington. And they're like, well, what do we do? Well, the only thing that we have left to do. So Mr. O'Hare and his buddy engaged nine bombers uh, so that they could save the USS Lexington. If you know the story, uh, his other buddy that he was flying with, uh, the plane gets shot and he has to go back to the ship. So Mr. O'Hare single-handedly takes down five uh, Japanese bombers before he runs out of bullets. And then, as he, after he had run out of bullets, he starts flying in between the bombers so that they're trying to shoot at him while they shoot each other. And he actually gets to take down a few more bombers in the, in the, uh, in the act with no bullets whatsoever. Uh, he was actually um, given the Medal of Honor by the president. And what a change that you can see of what happened in the life of one dad who was living a life of a lie. And because he decided 
to do something for his son that he couldn't do before. His son was given this amazing opportunity. While one man was probably responsible because of Al Capone's dealings with the death of so many people, how many people could, I mean, did his son probably save? Now, if you know the story, a dad was um, murdered for how he turned Al Capone in. And it's kind of a sad story. But when we think about historic moments in time, that made me think about this. I'm really looking forward to that movie. I hope we can watch it. But um, We need to distinguish between two words here. The words historical and the word, word historic. Because as we talk about the type of kairos, this special moment in time, someone might make the comment that, this happened was really historical. When this happened in my life, when Catherine decided to marry me, that was a historical moment. And I agree, 100%. And so many of you, you've had historical moments. And if you really think about it, everything that we do is a historical moment. The decisions we make, the things we do, all changes the trajectory of our lives. It changes who we are as a person. And so when we speak about historic moments... We speak about moments of great significance. Something like what we are talking about here today. When Jesus makes this claim, okay? When he says, when he makes this claim about who he is, it's this historic type moment. We have many moments in the Bible like this. You think about the whole Exodus story. The very reason they were here celebrating the Feast of Booths was because of the Exodus story. The birth of Christ, what we will celebrate in a few weeks, 58 days to be exact. We will celebrate the birth of Christ. That was a historic moment in the history of the world. And so when Jesus refers to my hour, when it refers to my hour had not yet come, he mentions this type of a moment. And Jesus is going to address this historic moment here in our passage, verse 21. I am going away, you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. And when Jesus makes this statement, when he makes this statement about this very historic moment, he's not speaking about his ascension. He's not speaking about his return. He is talking about his death on the cross. We know that because later in verse 28, he will say, When you lift up the Son of Man. Now, of course, the Jews are completely confused about what he's talking about. They're confused totally. And you see that confusion in verse 22. They say, well, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. To which Jesus could have replied, and I think Jesus should have replied, no, because you're going to do it for me. I don't have to kill myself. You're going to do it for me. So how Jesus will respond to the Pharisees here should have terrified them. How Jesus will respond to them should have scared them to death. And likewise, we should take the comments that Jesus makes here and we should take them to heart ourselves. We should not overlook them. Verse 23, he said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that, I would, that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You know, the Bible speaks of two types of dying. It speaks one of those who die in their faith. 
people of God, the saints of the Lord, the saints of the Old and the New Testament. Psalm 116, it's up on the screen. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This is when death is welcome. This is when death can be celebrated, when you die in faith. All those who die in faith enter the place that God has prepared for them from the foundation of the world. The only other type of dying we speak of in the Bible is those who die in their sin. And the Bible is also very clear about this type of death. The person who has no faith in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, they remain in their own sin. And that's the absolute worst state that anyone could ever be in or that anyone they could ever die in. Revelation 21 gives us a good uh, example of what happens when that happens. Revelation 21 verse 8. It's up on the screen. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Eternally separated from God, eternally the wrath of God being poured out upon that person for their sin, for those who choose not to believe and put their faith in Jesus. Here's our last point today. It says, Jesus gave up heaven to give us heaven. Jesus gave up heaven to give us heaven. You know, the very thing that God's people were celebrating here in this moment when Jesus makes these claims, the atonement for sin, the celebration for God's forgiveness for his people, uh, the forgiveness for sins, the anticipation of the Messiah that was to come. Um, And in speaking to Jesus, the very Son of God, face to face, they miss it. I want you to think about that for a minute. The very guys who should have seen the Messiah for who he were, for who he was, are standing face to face with the Messiah, arguing that he is a false witness. They miss it. And these words are scary to think that they were so close, to think that they were so smart and totally miss it. But verse 30. Don't miss verse 30, because in the midst of all these heavy verses, in the midst of all these warnings, we end well. Verse 30, and and he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. With such a heavy verse, with such heavy, um, we need a resolution like that. It's good to wrestle with the difficult verses, but the fact that there is hope is encouraging. But today, the the truth is, you're faced with the exact same truth that the guys were here in John chapter 8. You know, I started this morning with the question, who do you say Jesus is today? You know, I remember when I first moved to Odessa, when we moved here, we had these these tracks out in the hallway. We had this thing on the wall and had all these tracks, these gospel tracks that you could share the gospel with people and... um, let me just say this. Some of them were super cheesy. Cheese ball sharing the gospel tracks, right? I know some people have used them before and it's all great. And so some of them used to catch my eye. And this one in particular caught my eye this one time. On the front, it said this. The distance between heaven and hell is 12 inches. And after I walked past those tracks for about a month. I was like, the curiosity finally got the best of me. I was like, all right, I got to have to read that one, right? And you open it up. And what it was talking about 
was specifically the distance between your head and your heart. Because here's the truth. You can have all the head knowledge of who Jesus is. You can have all the head knowledge of what he's done. You can have all the head knowledge of all of his teachings. You could memorize the entire Bible. The Pharisees knew all about the Messiah. They had more head knowledge than most of the people around them. They knew the scriptures and they missed it. You could be sitting right here in church today. And you may have heard this message a thousand times. You may, have, you may think that you have a relationship with Jesus. Me and God, we're square. All things are good. And you can miss it. And that's kind of scary when I think about that. That people can sit in church and hear the gospel and hear the good news about Jesus. And just turn and reject it. Jesus said in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. 